So you're saying to yourself, yo, sir, dude, I wanted to see Kevin Smith in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but the motherfucker sold out. Well, after I shed a tear for you, I highly recommend bookmarking csmod.com. That's the place on the worldwide interwebs to see all upcoming Smodco shows, updated with linky links to Tiki Tickets. Say it with me, baby. csmod.com. Nice. Ooh, I just got a little hard there. So, you're saying, yo, sir, dude, I love sir, and I want to show the world. Wear your sir love with our official t-shirts, biatch. Fishies have no eyes. Let us fuck. Jay and Silent Bob get old. The Garmy. There's also posters, action figures. There's so many to choose from. Grab your smirch at smodcast.com. Scroll down and click on Smerchandise. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream.
That's an oldie and goodie here around Waking from the American Dream. That is Life the Movie with the Clutter Family. Uh, that is Jim Earl and his buddies. Bunch of TV writers doing music and stuff. Because here in Hollywood, you can't have one job. No, you have to have 82 jobs. <laughs> It is the land of multitasking. Welcome, everyone. It's Thursday. Yes, we know it's Thursday because I'm sitting here in front of a microphone. That's how I know it's Thursday because uh, talk about multitasking. I've got so much shit going on. I don't know if I'm coming or going. I just got out of rehearsal a few hours ago for my show tomorrow night at a Santa Monica Playhouse. We are sold out. I know it's very exciting. But there are still tickets available for next month, which I think is March 22nd, April 26th, and May 24th are all dates at the Santa Monica Playhouse, a Carlin Home Companion. Go to brownpapertickets.com, type in Carlin Home, Carlin Home Companion, you'll find it, buy a ticket, come see me, we'll laugh, we'll cry together, and then we'll hug at the end of the show. It'll be very exciting. Uh I'm excited uh, about tomorrow night. I, uh, it's just amazing. Every time I get together with Paul, Paul Provenza, who's directing me, uh, first of all, he goes away. Like lately he's been going away for like three and a half weeks to London. And, uh, and then I get all depressed because I'm by myself with my show. And, and you know what? I figured out I am not really a solo artist. I may be on stage for 90 minutes by myself, but I am a collaborator. I love hanging out with people. I love feeding off of people's ideas and, um, I don't know, just something about that is really necessary for my process. So Paul and I finally got together last night and then today and now I'm like all re-energized and I feel good about it and I'm not depressed and I don't want to go into my cave and working on new things. And every time we get together, we work on – he says something to me and it completely reframes a whole section of my show and I'm like, wow. And he's like – and he couldn't have said that to me three weeks ago because it wouldn't have landed the same way three weeks ago. So I'm thinking, has he been waiting three weeks to say that to me and now just said it because he knew it was going to land right? Or did it just come to him and it's perfect because we both knew the moment would be now and that's the way the universe works? I don't know the answer to these things, but all I know is once again today, he blew my mind. So I'm excited about tomorrow night getting to tell my story my multiple stories within a larger story to another audience. Uh, some friends, a lot of strangers are coming. I was looking at the list. I'm like, oh, I don't know these people. I like when strangers come. I like when friends are there too, but I like when strangers come. I think, wow, these people don't know who I am. And God, I hope they like me later. <laughs> so today is um, storytelling day here at Waking from the American Dream because I deem it so. And I am the empress of Waking from American Dreams, so I get to deem anything I want. Uh, I have a guest today who is a great writer and storyteller and a friend of mine that came via Wendy Hammers and her fantastic storytelling show, Tasty Words, which I've been doing for probably like eight years now. It's my home, it's my home storytelling place. And they're my homies there. It's, it's where I got my chops, where I learned to uh, write better stories and tell better stories. And the person I have on today, who we're not going to get to quite yet, uh, is a person I met there and who's always blown me away. And now he has a book out and I'm so proud and excited for him. And, uh, I hope you guys will enjoy today when he reads and we talk about his stories and his life and uh, go out and check out the rest of his book. He's going to read a couple of essays, but he's got like 35 other ones in that book or something. So he's got a lot to go. 
Uh, the other part of storytelling today is I'm going to play a track from my other friend because, you know, you can play your friend's stuff on your own podcast. It's, I think that's why people have podcasts. But I'm very lucky. I have very amazing friends. Uh, my other friend, Dylan Brody, who you all know. Hello. Uh, his new CD, Chronological Disorder, which I just love that fucking title. Then again, he is the purveyor of fine words and phrases. So it makes perfect sense that he would have a great title. His new CD just dropped. Tons of good reviews out there. He's very excited about it. I was there the night they recorded it. It's a great CD. Uh, we're going to play a little clip from that. But before we do that, I'm going to read a little something today. I don't do this very often, as we know. But a friend of mine asked me to write something for his newsletter blog. And I ended up you know how it is. Okay, here's the writer's life. So Monday, midday, this thing is due. I know about it on Wednesday the week before. Plenty of time. They just three to five hundred words is all you need to do, Kelly, right? I have even in my date book, Friday morning, write the blog piece for Patrick. Yeah. Monday morning comes around, I get an email. Hey, do you have the blog piece? We're going up live with it, you know, tomorrow at 9am or whatever. <gasps> Holy shit. No, I don't have the fucking blog piece. <laughs> Sit down. They need it by noon. And, uh, this is one of those moments where, uh, you just write something and then you end up only editing like two or three words because you're like, okay, something just came out of me and I don't, and it actually works. Uh, so this is not quite a story, but this is more like a blog post, but, uh, and it's on the Huffington Post. If you, if you want to comment about it, uh, you can obviously find me on Twitter and Facebook and comment about it, or you can go to the HuffPo and, and comment there because I'm, I'm now blogging again on the HuffPo because I guess I have no soul. What do I know? All right. Uh, this place is called Map to Nowhere. About three years ago, I was knee deep in grief about my father's death. Uh, it was about six months into my new life without him, and I was feeling even more confused about life than the day he had died. All that I assumed about who I was, life coach and workshop leader, where I was going, working with colleagues on exciting leadership programs around the world, and what I was here to do, showing how authentic vulnerability is an essential quality of leadership, had been flung up into the air, and it was a jumbled mess. I was now actively taking care of my father's legacy, immersed in the world of the entertainment industry after leaving it behind five years earlier, and being embraced by a comedy community that I had never connected with before. Although this may sound thrilling and most exciting, I felt lost in a desert without a map. I spoke with a wise friend and teacher, Patrick Ryan, about this. I really wanted Patrick to whip out a fresh map for me, one with roads clearly marked and an X on the spot where the treasure could be easily found, and say, all you have to do is go here, turn left, veer right, and you can't miss it. Instead, in a typical Patrick way, he said, well, you know, your job now is to be lost in the desert and report back to us what it's like there. A rush of relief swam through my body. Strange. Most of my life I have felt embattled between my strategic mind with its plans, ideas, and maps, and the messiness of life with its surprises, confusions, and organic unfolding. I've always felt that the only way to be successful was to figure out the exact steps that are needed to get from here to there and keep your head down and march along dutifully. 
But inevitably, I would immediately hate the drudgery of this approach. This would lead me to self-destructive behaviors that would undermine my grand plan, and then I would hate myself for ruining my chances of success. I would then turn to the anything-goes approach to life, letting the externals of events and others' opinions shape my trajectory. Although less drudgery was involved with this strategy, the amount of internal chaos it created was always intolerable, too. As I took Patrick's words to heart and was willing to witness where I found myself in this new life landscape, fatherless, motherless, I lost my mom in 1997, and with a whole new pile of life opportunities, I knew that somewhere between my strategic mind and the messiness of life, there was a map. I knew that it would not be accessible unless I was willing to be still, witness, listen, feel my innermost urges, and allow visions of possibility to emerge organically. A few weeks ago, I woke up to find that the New York Times wanted to talk to me. It seems that some path had emerged in my life these last few years, and it led me to an X on a map, the premiere of my radio show, The Kelly Carlin Show on Sirius XM. The funny thing is that if you were to pick up that map, you would not see a clearly marked road to somewhere. Instead, you'd only see where I had been. You see, I now know you can't make a map until you have traversed the territory. You can't show the way until you have walked the way. And most importantly, you can't buy, make, or chart a map of the unknown. It's just not possible. And this is a huge relief to me. So, folks... There it is. That's where I find myself these days on the map to nowhere. And, uh, and it is a relief, you know, it really is because, uh, I mean, I remember being in my twenties and thinking that everyone else had gotten the manual to life and they had just somehow missed my, um, uh, my, my mailbox, <laughs> like the telephone book comes for everyone else except me. And uh, I always looked out and thought, wow, everyone knows what's going on. I mean, and this was even after my mom said to me, um, after I got my first job, she said, don't worry, everyone feels like they're faking it. And everyone is. <laughs> still, though, I still looked out and said, no, it looks it looks really obvious. And, and, you know, even growing up with my dad and seeing the trajectory of his career, it just always seemed like he knew exactly where it was going and it was just this natural, you know, next step that he just knew what was going to happen. You know, I didn't really get to witness, uh, his, you know, his confusions and his own lost feelings about it. He didn't share that stuff with me. I was his kid. Uh, so for me, it always looked like, Oh, plan A, plan B, da, 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 there he goes into that one. But no, there really is no A to B to B to C, C to D. It's just, uh, it is that thing about being still and hearing the still small voice inside of you that really is like my inner GPS now and uh, taking the time to, to actually slow down enough to hear that. And uh, and also the other thing is I, I find myself not in a self-destructive or kind of bad way, but I find myself saying yes to things more lately, especially things that scare me. Because yes, uh, the things that scare me uh, seem to lead me in interesting directions. So I, uh, no, I'm not doing heroin. I didn't say yes to heroin. Jeez, people, you've got really need to get that out of your head. Uh, but you know, like yes to, to this podcast. I mean, I said yes to it. I didn't really know what I was doing. And, and here I am 
Wow. This is uh, episode 51, by the way. We didn't even celebrate last week episode 50. So here I am at episode 51 of my podcast, and uh, I didn't even have a map. It's really amazing. All right. Before we get to my live guest, I'm going to play a cut from Mr. Dylan Brody's new CD, Chronological Disorder. The name of this story is called An Ancient Zen Parable That I Wrote a Few Weeks Ago. In any case, (laughs) this woman shouted, I'm fixing to come. (laughs) And while it is good to give us that information... Please choose your words carefully. (laughs) Because she shouted, I'm fixing to come. And to me, that was adorable and hilarious. (laughs) And when you burst out laughing at exactly that moment in somebody else's experience, you need to get a new groupie. And this was going through my mind as my current groupie was coming toward me with my coffee in her hand and she was on the phone and the woman from Occupy LA who was about to give me my stage time was coming from the other side and I went into a panic and I said, I'd like you to be my assistant. (laughs) So I needed to get a new groupie. (laughs) And nobody was answering my Craigslist ad. So I was already having a bad day. And I was sitting at my desk writing a sketch for a radio show for which I do not get paid because I continue to become incrementally more famous while continuing to make incrementally no money. Why am I talking about this? Oh, right. So (laughs) it was very frustrating working on this thing. I had Dar Williams blasting on the stereo and I was weeping and writing the least funny comedy sketches in the history of radio and hating myself and really feeling as though every aspect of my career is punishment for my own lack of negotiating skills and business savvy. And I finally set aside that task. And wrote this piece with which I would like to start tonight's performance. (laughs) An ancient Zen parable that I wrote three weeks ago. (laughs) I call it an ancient Zen parable that I wrote three weeks ago. Master So emerged from his chambers, greeted the dawn, greeted the dew, and then found scuff marks on the flat slate tiles of the courtyard. He smiled to himself and then adopted a look of stern disapproval and went to the backyard where the young novices were doing their calisthenics. He interrupted their exercises and said, I have asked you not to skateboard in the courtyard. (laughs) Yet there are scuff marks. Would anyone like to tell me anything about this? 
And one of the boys said, I'll bet it was Mark. He's skateboarding all the time. And the master said, no, no. I wasn't asking you to point fingers, but it occurs to me that I was asking something of you that I should not expect from people of your age. Instead, just meet me in the courtyard when you're done here. And he maintained his look of stern disapproval until he got back to the courtyard where he smiled to himself, sat down on the steps, and began reading a mystery novel. (laughs) 42 minutes later, the kids emerged from their morning exercises. They came to the courtyard. They found the master sitting on the steps reading. He had set up for them buckets of soapy water and stiff brushes, and they set to work cleaning the slate. And after an hour and a half, one of the boys went up to Master So, and he said, I don't think this is fair. And the master said, you're all doing the same thing. And the boy said, yeah, I didn't skateboard in the courtyard. I didn't try to tell you who did skateboard in the courtyard. I did nothing wrong. Why am I being punished? And the master said, you did nothing wrong? And the boy said, no. And the master said, then you're not being punished. You're just cleaning a floor. (laughs) The master returned to his reading, and the boy returned to his task. At some point while I was writing this piece, my wife returned home from wherever she had been. (laughs) Pulled a Stevie Smith book off the shelf, began reading, and then realized that she could hear Dar Williams from upstairs, and that that meant I was probably weeping while I worked. (laughs) So she came halfway up the stairs so she could peer at me through the banisters. She said, how are you doing? And I thought about saying, not well. (laughs) I need a new groupie. (laughs) and my sketch isn't funny and I'm not getting paid for it and I'm sorry I'm not making any money but I remembered a moment when I was about to test for my very first black belt I was just a couple of months away and I was going to every class I could get to even when I didn't want to and one evening I decided just go to the class you can take it easy on yourself if you have to and I walked into the studio And my master, Master Lim, said, How are you, Donnie? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I'm I'm tired. And he adopted a look of stern disapproval. (laughs) And he pulled me into his office. And he said, No. (laughs) Donnie, you high bow. Soon to be black bow. <laughs> you never know tired. <laughs> hmm. You say I am tired. Now I am worried. Now you go easy. Oh no, I'm tired. Now I'm worried. Oh, and everybody down a little bit. Not so good. <laughs> you say to me, I feel great. I go, oh good. No worry to you. I'm a little better. You're a little better. Everybody a little better. Change world. Little bit. you soon to be black belt already high belt role model somebody say how are you always I feel good I feel great everybody scared everybody tired everybody have enough weakness of their own 
You share your strength. So I said to my wife, I feel good. <laughs> I just wrote a piece. I think it's strong. <laughs> She said, okay. Because I worry when you're listening to Dar Williams. And I said, no, I'm fine. I was just cleaning a floor. <laughs> She knew that had to be code because I was sitting at my desk and my office is carpeted. So I just changed the music over to the mountain goats because that always makes me happy. One of my favorite things about the mountain goats, by the way, lead singer and songwriter John Darnielle sometimes performs alone. And when he performs alone, he still goes on stage and says, Good evening, we are the Mountain Goats. <laughs> so I switched it over to the Mountain Goats, and I went back to my desk, and I was aware of my wife still worried, standing at the stairs watching me. And finally, she said the most reassuring thing she could possibly say at that moment. She said, you know, if I had time to do the job, I'd answer the Craigslist ad. <laughs> and then she returned to a reading and I returned to my task that was Dylan Brody's uh, a Zen par an ancient Zen parable that I wrote a few weeks ago uh, you can find uh, Chronicle Chronological Disorder, his new CD on Amazon and iTunes. Of course you can, because everything is on Amazon and iTunes. Our whole existence is on Amazon and iTunes. Wow. All right. My live guest, my live guest, Mr. Ms. is from Paramus, New Jersey, and thus makes him a native parasite. <laughs> His plays, The Fourth Chair and Eight Miles from New York, have received multiple productions in New York City, Los Angeles, and one regional theater, and have both won full-length playwrights awards. He's recently finished a book of 39 essays, oh, 39 essays, about growing up entitled, My Imaginary Friend Was Too Cool to Hang Out With Me. He has performed in LA reading series at Sit and Spin, Word Nerd, Tasty Words, and Spark. He has executive produced and co-executive produced television movies. He is a former TV development executive with New Line, NBC, Paramount, <laughs> and CBS. Mr. Charles Freericks. Oh, I can never say your name right. I can't say it right. Freericks. <laughs> It's a mouthful. Freericks. It's Ricks or Free. It's Ricks or Free. Uh, I call you Chuck because that's how I met you first. So it's Charles officially out there in the world. People say if you're looking for his book, but it's Chuck. Congratulations on your book. Thank you so much. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to write it. Was it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you talked about Wendy before, and I think that, uh, I mean, so many of these stories came from work I did in her class, and uh, it was just a real joy. I mean, you know, getting these things down on paper and uh, remembering them and, and bringing some humor to them. What's your process like? Do you, um, is writing easy and, and always fun for you, and you sit down and it flows, or how do you work? No, it's just awful. <laughs> It's, it's, it's about the most miserable experience I can imagine. Um, I, it, you know, it's, uh, it depends. I mean, you know, uh, 
sometimes like if I'm in the shower, I'm in the car and I suddenly come up with like the line of a lifetime and I'm desperately trying to remember it till I get to a place where I can record it somewhere. That, that's fun. Um, you know, it's like, you know, you're stuck in traffic on the 405 and all of a sudden like, what, whoa. <laughs> yep. There it is. This gem. Yeah. Um, what I hate is, I mean, you were talking about with the writing your blog piece, uh, knowing that I'm going to sit down and write for two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, which we should actually be honest about. It's knowing that I'm going to go sit down and surf the internet for two hours, <laughs> but it's, it's miserable. I mean, there's nothing like looking at a blank. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to say page, but we don't have pages. Whatever anymore. that is. Yeah, yeah. That blank white Screen. square. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I fool myself. Uh, and it still works after 10 or 12 years of writing. Uh, although I didn't used to do this, but I certainly have done it in the last eight years. I tell myself that I only need to sit down for 30 minutes mm. and I have full permission to write really badly. And if after 30 minutes, nothing's clicking or connecting, I have every right to close it for the day and, and be done with it. And, um, and sometimes I even have to trick myself into 10 minutes, like 10 minutes, really, Kelly, you can do 10 minutes. And, um, I've never gotten up. I've always been sitting like something got flowing for me and then I would it would start to to go. So it's Yeah, I was because that that's the amazing thing. When it when you actually do start writing, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, it's three hours are gone, five hours are gone, seven hours are gone, and you haven't eaten. Yeah. So it's actually a good diet plan too for me. <laughs> um and it, it it's it's astounding to me how when it's flowing, it's uh you, you don't wanna leave. Um, you know, you get like, you know, a family member comes in and says, you want to go grab some food? You're like, leave me the hell alone. Yeah. Yeah. I need to work this ne- next uh, part out. Exactly. You know, and it's like, even like, you know, someone tentatively sets up plans with you for like two weeks ahead of time. You're like, <laughs> no, I'm still going to be working on this. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, you know, and so I think what I figured out is that it's not writing that's difficult. It's starting writing. Yeah. I think that's very true. That's really it. And if you can, that's why I think the trick, you know, I work with my clients a lot on that because like just to sit your ass down in a chair. Um, and for me, deadlines work. I know that if I'm, even if I'm just going to go to Wendy's class, mm-hmm. Wendy Hammers has a, a writing class that she teaches and she lets people drop in. If I know I'm going to do that, I know, oh shit, I'm going to read something on Tuesday, yeah. you know, so therefore Monday I'm writing it or Tuesday morning if it's an afternoon class. <laughs> No, it's, 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 I think deadlines for me are a huge, uh, and wonderful crutch that I, I rely on whenever mm-hmm. I can. Um, uh, you know, falling into the other side of it. I mean, sometimes when I, I don't have deadlines and I don't have something specific that I have to get somewhere, even for myself, I'll turn around and I, I'll, I'll sit down to write and I'll look and I'll say, you know, the last document I saved was three months ago. Yeah. And then I feel just nauseous. Yeah. It's like. Yeah. How can you call yourself a writer? Exactly. (laughs) What do you do? What have you been doing for three months? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I can totally relate to that. Yeah. Definitely. So you've brought your book. I want, I want, I would love for you to read a piece. Sure. Uh, We'll, we'll do a couple today, but whatever you picked as your first one. Well, I was going to, uh, I thought I'd pick my first time for my first one. Oh, your first time for your first one. Isn't that (laughs) handy? Lovely. Um, of course, I should have got myself to the right page you're here. You're good. You're good. We, we are alive. It's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> They're patient with us. It all started because my appendix hurt. I've been suffering from acute appendicitis for four years. But as, as appendicitis is lethal within a matter of days, there is a possibility that I may have misdiagnosed myself. 
This was 1982 when I was a junior at George Washington University and I was a Christian scientist who was losing my faith. Having someone check my appendix had not been and was not an option. I did not go to doctors. I did not drink. I did not do anything that acknowledged my existence as a material rather than a spiritual being. This made me extremely popular. <laughs> you know, Chuck doesn't drink. What a goof. Is that true, man? That's like totally fucked up. I mean, I respect that. You want to hang? You could totally drive us to the pier. The pier was a gay club in the warehouse district of D.C. It was the place with the straight crowd that went to George Washington, American, and Maryland. We danced to videos of gay guys with buttered up skin dry humping. Let's get physical. Belted out as I tried not to watch the camera explore some bulked up quivering thigh on the big screen. But the most memorable thing about the pier to me was watching the disintegration of my friends. This group of intellectual students morphed into a mob of spit-spraying, word-slurring, vomit-spewing dipshits. So it wasn't the joy of alcohol or peer pressure that made me think I should have a drink. It was my appendix. My logic being that I could still, um, still could not go to a doctor because I didn't drink because I was a Christian scientist. If I had a drink, then I would become a normal person. And normal people went to the doctor, especially normal people who had had acute appendicitis for more than four years. And so one night, while attending a revival of Mornings at 7 at the National Theater with my friend Kim Howard, I announced that I was getting drunk after the play. Two hours later, we climbed the narrow steps to Café des Artistes in Georgetown and found a table. I was queasy. I wasn't sure if it was the excitement or my appendix. The place was full of old people, like in their 20s. Kim looked into my face with her pale blue eyes. Are you sure, she asked. Are you really ready to do this? I nodded yes, and she took my hand in hers and squeezed it really tight and told me how special it was that I had chosen her to be the first one I did it with. As much as I wanted to get to the drink, I did not want the squeeze to end. Kim was the best-looking best friend I'd ever had in my whole life. But then acting as if I, Chuck Freericks, was a normal person and not a Christian scientist, Kim broke the squeeze and asked me what I wanted to drink. I had no idea. I didn't know what anything tasted like. So I told her to choose for me. She decided that a Greyhound was a good baby drink to get me going. Standing all of five feet one inch, she strode over to the bar and came back with two drinks, one of them, believe it or not, for me. She made a toast, Ya le bie, which we both thought meant I love you in Russian. I took a fairly nice-sized gulp of the Greyhound. It was an interesting concoction made of grapefruit juice and turpentine. As much as drinking turpentine was unpleasant, I knew I needed to have at least six drinks to get a good drunk on, and I wolfed the rest of it down. About half an hour and four drinks later, I was standing in the men's room, which was moving like it was made out of seaweed and we were underwater. I thought to myself, if this is what being drunk is, then I am a very, very good drunk. Because even though I can't stop the walls from undulating, I am perfectly capable of doing anything and everything else. I am no more stupid or slow than I was five drinks ago. I am a super drunk, unaffected by the drink. Kim, who was drinking with me, was maybe 100 pounds if you hung a cinder block around her neck, held me up when I stumbled out of the bathroom and asked me if I wanted to go home. She took my face in her hands and kissed me on the cheeks and said, we would be best friends forever. When we got downstairs to my car, a Plymouth Sapporo with a five-speed stick shift, we decided she should drive, even though she had never driven a stick. It took us two hours to go the mile and a half back to my dorm. Although it was late, I ran from dorm room to dorm room, waking up the entire fifth floor of Crawford Hall to let everyone know that I was a normal person and I was drunk. 
The next morning, I woke up feeling like my head was a large aluminum globe filled with a mixture of acid and, not and noxious gas. I went to the cafeteria in the Marvin Center and slowly went from table to table, telling all the kids I knew that I was a normal person and I had a hangover. But the first I'm talking about is not my first time getting drunk. You see, that night I went to my fraternity house, Zeta Beta Tau, and told everyone I could find that I was a normal person and I was an alky. Howie and Anoush from Vermont, who ran a lucrative pot business from the second floor, told me that my reward for finally drinking would be that they were going to get me high. I'd known them for two years, but this was the first time they had ever invited me into their room. They gave me a bong, lit the bowl, and told me to inhale. Then they told me not to wrap my lips around the bong, that it wasn't a soda bottle, but to put my lips inside of it. No, 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 Let you let go of the thumb hole after. No, did you even get a hit? The bubbling of the water was thrilling. The feeling of the acrid smoke coming into my lungs was horrible. My insides were on fire, but they were both looking at me and smiling like proud parents. So I took another hit to make them happy. Just not so big this time, and it seared my cilia. And then I took another, and then another, until this weird kid from Phoenix came into the room and asked me what the fuck I was doing. I told him that I was now a normal person and a head. I was a stoner. It was then that I suddenly realized that I loved the weird kid from Phoenix. He was my best friend, as were Howie and Anoush from Vermont. Howie gently retrieved the bong from my hands, saying nicely, just don't bogart the weed, okay? But the first I'm talking about is not my first time getting stoned. You see, the weird kid from Phoenix said that now that I was cool, it was time for me to lose my blow cherry. Next thing I knew, Tattoo You, the Rolling Stones album, was on the bed. A tiny homemade envelope cut from a magazine page was spilled out onto it, and a razor blade was chopping through the white powder. I was handed a $20 bill rolled into a straw, which I aimed at the powder, using it to suck the stuff into my nostrils. Now, I was pretty stoned, but I knew that tasting medicine in the back of my throat could not be what was supposed to happen. It was disgusting, like licking a syringe, or what I thought licking a syringe would taste like. The guys explained that that was the good part, the drip, and that I should enjoy it. So I did. With every toot I took, I waited for the drip. Oh, how great it was. The drip. I loved the drip. I loved being normal. But the first time I'm talking about is not my first time doing cocaine. By the next night, I had blown off two full days of classes and had lost track so badly that I wasn't sure what classes I had blown off. It was that night that my friends from Crawford Hall and my friends from ZBT, all wanting to see me drunk, took me to the exchange. It was Thursday, which was a, a gay night, actually, at the beer. Everyone was buying me free drinks. It was upside-down shooter night, and if you lay your head on the bar looking up at the ceiling, the bartender would pour your shot into your mouth. For the first time in my three years at George Washington University, my friends did not disintegrate in front of me. In fact, they stayed as witty and urbane and poised as they had been when we walked into the bar sober. This was freaking cool. Becky Sanders, who was Jeff Anderson's girlfriend and had a Jufro, came up to me and told me that she had broken up with Jeff. Her eyes actually seemed to smile. I told her that I had become a normal person, and not only did I drink, but I smoked weed and snorted blow. I was getting a little unsteady as the walls of the exchange began a seaweed dance. I found a chair and sat on it, talking to Becky Sanders, who was now standing over me. Becky and I had maybe sort of flirted once before, but we barely knew each other. She was but one of a hundred cute girls on campus who ignored me. Now she was standing over me and laughing at everything I said. I need a place to sit, she shouted through the noisy bar. Use my lap, I responded. I liked drinking. 
Becky sat on my lap and we started talking about us and why we hadn't gone out yet. And then I was dipping her like we were dancing, but we were sitting on one chair. I took Becky to my car and drove her the one block back to her dorm. There I pushed on the brake and let the clutch up at the same time, stalling the car. Feeling like a complete idiot, I started the car again, and instead of taking it out of gear, I sat there talking to Becky for at least another 15 minutes with my foot pressing the clutch against the floorboard and my bladder feeling beyond all known human capacity. Holy shit, did I have to whiz. But I was not going to give in because a cute girl with perfect teeth was sitting in my car talking about her and me dating. It was a good conversation. Finally, she said she needed to get back to her room, and I did not stop her because my foot was numb and my need to whiz was epic and my appendix was starting to throb. Then she said, I guess I better kiss you goodnight, and I did not know what to do. You see, I was sweet 20 and had never been kissed. I had never actually placed my lips on the lips of another human being. So I leaned in the way I thought I should, pressed harder against the clutch, pressed harder against my urethra muscle, and I put my lips on Becky Sanders' lips. And then something unexpected happened. She pushed her tongue into my mouth. And the first thought that came into my mind was, so that's what French kissing means. Still drunk as I was, I didn't know what was expected of me. Was I supposed to let her explore my mouth? Was I supposed to nip at her tongue? Were we supposed to tongue duel? I went with my gut and began to tongue wrestle. She moaned and kept at it. Was it because she didn't want to embarrass me or because I had somehow managed not to embarrass myself? What if I was a tongue moron and she was humoring me? When we were done, I put my head on Becky's shoulders to say sorry if I didn't do that right. She smiled at me and told me to call her. But the first I'm talking about is not my first time French kissing. The next day, I called the doctor's office and told them I had appendicitis. They made an appointment for me that morning, causing me to blow off another day of classes. I was nervous, as anyone with appendicitis would be, but I knew I was doing the right thing, being a normal person. So I waited for a doctor. When he came in, I told him about being a Christian scientist, assuming this would fascinate him and he'd want to talk about it. He grunted. He pushed my abdomen, asked me if it hurt, and told me that I didn't have appendicitis. He then told me to drop my pants and my underwear. What the fuck? Oh, God, it was all true. All the horrible stories Christian scientists had told me about doctors were true, and now I was no longer a Christian scientist. I was a normal person. I had to go to doctors. I drank. I smoked pot. I snorted cocaine off the album cover of Tattoo You by the Rolling Stones. And I loved the drip. I tongue wrestled with girls. I put my head down on a bar and let a stranger pour alcohol into my mouth. I had made my decision, and I had to live with it. So I took my pants and my underwear off and let the doctor feel my scrotum. When he was done, he told me that I did not have a hernia either. He said that the pain in my abdomen was probably from not eating enough fiber and that I should eat celery. Then he left without saying goodbye. And so I've reached the first I have been referring to since the beginning of this piece, the first time that I was ever felt up. And how ironic it was that the person who felt me up was a bald doctor with too many appointments to even take the little time necessary for a little bit of conversation and getting to know each other to make me feel more comfortable about the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's fantastic oh, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. fantastic logan muted me so that you would have a clear microphone <laughs> so i was over here dying oh your writing is so beautiful oh thank you so much really so powerful and uh oh man the drip <laughs> <laughs> Scared the hell out of me. <laughs> you, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to dissect. It. It's just so beautiful. But I'm so curious about this being a Christian scientist, growing up in a Christian scientist home. Mm -hmm. And here you are now out in the world by yourself. Mm -hmm. And, 
having, you know, making this big choice to step away from this thing that I'm guessing was a a huge part of your identity and part of being your family. You know, what, what was that? I mean, besides the story, obviously we know what it was like, but, but what, 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 you know, what was the turning point for you there to, to, I I would say it took me about two years. I'll Mm. be honest with you. I I think that, um, I mean, as the story says, there was, I was having this pain in my gut Mm. and I had gone years and years without doing anything about it. And, um, finally, um, just kind of had enough and said, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. Um, you know, I, when I stopped believing in Christian science, it's funny. We were uh, joking before the show started about the voices inside our head. Uh-huh. And I think that when I was little, I would actually assign one of those voices inside my head the role of God. Right. And <laughs> yes. God would often tell me that it was great that I was a Christian scientist and he was very proud of me and 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 keep going. And, um, you know, at some point in time, I just came became too busy to have voices inside my head. <laughs> and – um. Um, and then notice that, you know, I hadn't heard from God in a while. <laughs> um, and my appendix hurt, you know. <laughs> right. So it's like, well, if he's not hanging around, yeah. <laughs> then, you know, I guess I'm okay to kind of go and check this other thing out here. And, um, did, what was the ramification with your family? Did, did you, what well, did you? Well, as it turned out, I was, um, uh, uh, the second one in the family to do this. Oh. My brother had already, um, oh. my younger brother had beat me to it. Hmm. Apparently discovered in a, um, a pool of, of his, his own vomit on the steps of his dorm one day. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was, I was luckily, you know, the second child in this case to, mm. to, to do it. Yeah. My, my parents were actually very open to, uh, I mean, they, I, they wanted me to stay a Christian scientist for right, sure, but they right. were very open to, to us, um, uh, choosing whatever path oh, we wanted wow. to. So that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm imagining though, that created a bit of an outsider status for you growing up unless you grew, I don't know if you went to school with other Christian scientists or you went to public school or well now you're going to ruin the next story oh okay okay well, no, 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 not, I don't <laughs> no, wanna... no I was I, I, I'm kidding I actually well I, I, well I'm trying to figure out uh, the right amount of time but yeah I was it was definitely totally an outsider thing mm-hmm. um the uh, uh I think my brother and I were, were the Christian scientists in in Paramus New Jersey <laughs> the, um bing. <laughs> there they are. There they go walking down the street. Exactly. Exactly. And um, um, again, it's actually something that's covered in the book also, but not a story I'm going to read tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very true also that in high school also I – um, you know, I went in like the, the nerd who no one was friends with and no one talked to. And then somewhere someone realized that I was the world's perfect designated driver. <laughs> And, you became and I became Mr. Popular. like one of the most popular kids in my entire school. I was, I mean, I was getting invited to every party. I was the kid sneaking up into New York State where the drinking law was, uh, uh, drinking age was younger. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, everyone was calling me. Everyone wanted to hang with me. Um, and, and, and I enjoyed that. <laughs> Did you, were you a writer in high school? Uh, not really, no. I think that, um, uh, you know, I wrote a few things that, um, that I liked, but I, I, I was, uh, I, I wanted to design cars and I wanted to be a politician. So I wanted to be a car designing politician. <laughs> 
a politician. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. What, what, who was your like role model for that? What was the, well, when I was in fifth grade, I actually tried to get the, uh, my whole class to, um, support George McGovern. Uh huh. That was 1972. And, uh, um, and I felt, you know, very defensive when people would come back and like say, when well, my father says that he's, you know, a drug addict or he's I'm like, and I would defend and fight for George <laughs> McGovern. Um, cause I, I've, um, but, um, um, and, and actually in 76, I, I wanted him again, although he had no chance in that, uh, mm-hmm. primary cause he'd been so, ba- so badly beaten, um, uh, four years before. Um, but uh, and then in 1980, I, I worked for Ted Kennedy, um, where I actually it was very cool. I got to go see this thing called a fax machine, and I sent um, Senator Kennedy his speech over the telephone. Wow! It was the coolest. It thing. was a miracle, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm so old. <laughs> I, I'm as old as you. I do remember that miracle of the fax machine. I remember going waiting for the thing to come at the office, and oh. it would it would turn on, it would ring, yeah. and then this paper would magically come out, and there would be typing on it oh it was so amazing it was so amazing do you remember a few years after that the first time that you you um received a document from someone on a computer with a modem and i remember that was i remember it was like a word perfect document <laughs> yes. and i remember like there were four lines then there were eight lines <laughs> Went to get a sandwich. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Went and painted a picture. Exactly. <laughs> and we're just so amazed that this could be done. Uh, absolutely. I know. And now if my text doesn't come in quick enough, I'm frustrated. That's why I love that Louis C.K. piece where he talks about the people being frustrated with their phones. Or <laughs> it has to go to space and back. <laughs> so I, I do try to remember that, that it is going to space and back. See, I'm still, I'm still the old mindset. I actually, if I'm trying to text someone, I like aim the phone. <laughs> well, they're in Beverly Hills. In their general direction. So where is Beverly Hills from here? Oh, that's right. It's over there somewhere. So when did you start writing plays? Um, I started writing plays in college. Uh huh. Um, I, I had what I thought was a brilliant idea. Um, I never ever finished it. It was, um, cause I really sucked at writing at the time. <laughs> Because basically, I, you know, like, I, I thought that you, you filled in so many things before the story happened right. in writing. So right. basically, I would write like, you know, 70 pages of people chatting. <laughs> figuring like the story will start soon, but you know, I want, I want people to hear them. <laughs> yeah, they need to know this. Talk about what kind of tea they want. Um, so, uh, but I, when I was, during college, I actually took a, um, uh, class in, uh, short story. Where, um, I basically wrote down sort of a, a fantasy that I, uh, of, um, uh, when I say fantasy, that's an odd word, but you know, a story that I, uh, based on real people I knew, mm-hmm. but in a situation that I wanted to happen. And because I uh-huh. used real people I knew, all of a sudden I got all this, these great responses and, and that kind of started to draw me in and make me understand how to write or what to write about. Mm-hmm. And then I wound up, uh, after graduating, I, I took classes at New School for social research. I took classes at NYU. And then I came out here to, uh, SC and was in the writing program there. Um, and, um, thought I was gonna then move to Paris for two years and then come back and go to Boston where I'd be hired as an editor at The Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, those things haven't happened yet. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm still waiting to go to Paris for two years also. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll see each other. 
That'd be cool. That'll that'll be nice when that happens because you know it's awkward. I don't have a lot of words of French, and I'll get better while I'm there. I know that, but you know it'll be just, nice to see some friends who can speak English too. Just don't make the mistake I've made every time I've been there, which is to like use the few words I know, because then then they they respond and they French, do, yeah. And you don't know what the fuck they're saying. Yeah, <laughs> and I have a good accent, so it, it, they think I know, they and are. that's I'm screwed then. And I just oh, look at horrible. them and just like. Please now forgive me. <laughs> but the cool thing about Parisians is if you do try, at least they will do the English with you a little bit. Yeah. You know, if you don't try, then they, they act like you're from the moon. They put their gawas out on your <laughs> forehead. <laughs> your forehead. And they have their dog poop on your foot. Yes. <laughs> there is dog poop everywhere in the Paris. Yeah. So you were going to go to Paris. You're going to come back and, and be in and do the Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah. You know that those fantasies though, mm-hmm. it's part of that map I was talking about earlier. It's like, that's what I'll do. Oh, I'll that. go to Paris and we'll, we'll do the thing. And yeah, it's still, and it just, it's so weird where we end up. You ended up in television. Yeah. I had a friend, um, whose father was running a, uh, was opening a new gas station in Orange County and. <laughs> It's got, this is a true story. And was um, uh, needed someone. They were going to give out free hot dogs uh, to get people to come to the new gas station. So, um, and I had, a, I had a little crush on this girl. So I, I went down there, and um, at some point in time, her sister came to help also. And her sister just happened to be in human resources at CBS, and she said. Um, you know, if you ever wanted like a little temp work, mm. um, you know, I could get you some. So I called her up and I said, like, a little temp work. Um, I went in there for um, half a day to file um, <laughs> human resources documents. Right. And then 20 years later, I was the vice president at New Line Cinema. So so clearly your alphabetizing skills really paid off in I, your, your television career. I consider myself the, um, the Joe Namath of, of – uh, of, of alphabetizing. Wow. Yeah. That's, you know, I've, I've heard kind of whispering about that around town here, but it's, people come to me often, yeah. you know, it's J H. No, 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 sorry. It's H I J. Now when you, so you're, see, so, so you got in at CBS and, um, and you started moving through the ranks as they say, mm-hmm. Um, what was going on with your writing dreams at that point where you're going, oh shit. Well, I had very recently been dumped by my college girlfriend. So I was writing poetry. Oh, <laughs> nice. Spent a couple of years doing that. Um, I was working on poetry and I was working on, on stage plays. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually I wound up as an agent's desk at William Morris. And, um, luckily I had one of the agents who was not as crazy as most of the agents were at William Morris. And I would like, you know, sneak. This was back in the days that we actually wrote on a Selectric. Right. And yes. I would sneak in a page for me and then <laughs> write and then write a letter for him. And, right. Um, nice. so I, I did a play there. Um, and, uh, I kept going. I mean, I was, I, I think I started to really concentrate on plays because I was starting to get some good reactions from them and starting to get productions. Um, what in the end finally soured me, I guess, got me to stop writing plays so much. Not that I'm sorry, I would love to try to play again. Was um, having kids and having that kind of you know spending the time doing that was mm-hmm. a, and then b. Um, by that by that point in time, I was an executive in the TV movie world, mm-hmm. and I knew how hard it was to get a TV movie made, or um, and I knew how hard it was to get a play made, and they seemed to be about the same. Yeah. Except the difference was when you got a TV movie made, someone made one hundred fifty thousand right. dollars, and when you got a play made, you spent. 
$400 of your own on getting flyers printed up. <laughs> At least. So it's <laughs> – yeah. It, you know, so it, it started to, I, and I, unfortunately I concentrated on TV movies because, um, the signs were all over that those were going away. But, yeah. you know, that was what everyone trusted with me with and, and what I knew really well. I knew all the directors. I knew all the writers. I knew all the, um, phone numbers to get to Jane Seymour's agent. And, <laughs> you know, so I was, I was really entrenched in that world. And, um, and of course that world, you know, went the way of, um, of ocean liners and, and steam train and, ver- and, and variety shows. Also. Exactly. Yeah. And ice delivery at home. <laughs> yes. So then I was suddenly, um, in my forties and, and, um, pretending that I could change to reality TV with, uh, everyone else, but there were not a lot of interest because, in, you know, when I'd come up and say, um, you know, sort of my known buzzwords, you know, um, Valerie Bertinelli, Heather Locklear, right. I, I would be thrown out of the room. Right. But actually right now, those would be interesting people to have reality shows about. They would be. I think they would actually do really well. They would be. I, I'm going to demand a Heather Locklear reality show. Yeah. She's kind you know, that would be great. I still, I still feel on my knee. The, the, uh, first time I met Heather Locklear, it was, she was reading for, for a movie that we were doing and she reached out and just touched my knee for like one second. <laughs> this would be 1988. <laughs> to this day, I still remember where Heather Locklear touched my knee. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Cellular memory. Exactly. Well, why don't you read us another story? Sure. Um, let me do a, uh, sure. And by the way, everyone, you can find this book, uh, uh, on Amazon. And, uh, do you have a, a website? Um, I don't, but I am on Facebook and the book is on Facebook. Oh, the book is um, on Facebook. It's Facebook book. It's, and it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and it is on, um, um, uh, eBay and the eBay. Alibris. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't, uh, so eBay, are people um bidding on this book or <laughs> no, it's, uh, oh, it's just a sell thing. I get it now. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, the story I'm going to read to you, uh, now took place about, um, it actually couldn't deal with the Christian science again. Uh, although these are the only two stories that do, if you don't like Christian science stories, um, <laughs> this is called Jews driving home from church. When I was 12, my brother and I were the only Christian scientists in the entire Paramus school system, including all seven elementary schools, both junior highs, and even the senior high school. Uniqueness is not something one strives for at 12. About a quarter of the kids at school were Protestant, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, etc. About half of the kids were Catholic. The rest were Jews. Now, I believe that we're all the same, but something inside of me, even when I was very young, gravitated towards the Jews. They scaled baseball cars with me and played knock hockey with me. They included me in kickball. And though they made cutting fun of me for being a Christian scientist, saying things like, you know, my grandmother's older than your religion, they still spoke to me and hung out with me. And yet, as much as I liked them, I did not belong with the Jews. They went to Hebrew school to learn their heritage while I went to the Paramus Boys Club to play pool, eat Hostess cupcakes, and watch reruns of the Monsters. They lit Shabbat candles while I ate Mrs. Mrs. Paul's fish sticks and watched the Brady Bunch. They wore gold Mogan Davids and gold highs dangling from their chains around their necks while I wore a water-soluble tattoo that I'd gotten at the surprise out of a Cracker Jack box. They went to synagogue while I went to church. 
On Sunday mornings, when my family drove to our church, it seemed as if ours was the only car driving out of town, past the Baptist church, past the Episcopalian church, the two Catholic churches, and the two synagogues, all the way into Ridgewood, where the Christian scientists went. For an hour each week during services, Christian science would suddenly become a normal thing. But then when we climbed back into our car and drive past all the other houses of worship again, everything changed one day. Driving home from church, driving from the place where I had my four, I'm sorry, my hour of normalcy to the place where I was, that Christian science kid. My dad was talking about one of the families in our church, a family who we were friendly with and said that they were Jewish. This conversation went on to include a surprising revelation to me. There were lots of Jews at the First Church of Christ Scientists of Ridgewood, New Jersey. There were the Rosenbergs, the Levins, and the Greens. I'd known Ira Rosenberg my entire life, and it had never occurred to me that he was among the chosen people. As our car rolled down the underpass below the Erie Lackawanna tracks, my mom said it was true of the Englewood Christian Science Church, too. After all, her mother went there. At first, I thought she meant that her mother, Mama, knew of some Jews in her church. But as the conversation continued, I realized that wasn't what my mother was saying at all. No, in fact, what my mother was saying was that Mama was a Jew. Mama's name was Sonia Avakian. Now, it doesn't get much more Armenian than that, but she was born Sophia Lifshitz, the daughter of Simone Lifshitz and Gasha Rappaport. Wait a minute, I blurted out. Mama's a Jew. Now, you don't hang around with Jews for 12 years and not have it pounded into your head that the Jewish religion is passed from mother to child. If your mother is a Jew, you are a Jew. And my mother was saying out loud that her mother was a Jew, which meant that my mother was a Jew. Now, as I kept going on this short jaunt through my family tree, it occurred to me that I was, oh my God, could it be true? I recalculated in my head again just to make sure I had it correct. Gasha was a Jew, Sonia was her daughter, and thus Sonia was a Jew. Mary was Sonia's daughter, and thus Mary was a Jew. I was Mary's son, and thus... I breathed in deeply to calm myself, and then I screamed out in delight, I'm Jewish! Well, sort of, but we're Christian scientists, my mom answered. No words had ever been spoken before as wonderful as these, I was a Jew. My mom tried to stem the damage, explaining that yes, we were a little Jewish, but we're not allowed to tell anyone, because Mama had not only lived through the Russian pogroms and the Nazis, but had had a childhood nanny who had convinced her that as a Jew, Mama was personally responsible for crucifying Jesus. So to avoid being, I'm sorry, so to avoid being persecuted by genocidal zealots, she took on the persona of an Armenian, I asked. Okay, I was 12. I may not have used that exact language, but that is the gist of what I really asked. And Mama's choice did seem a tad logical to me. No, she became Armenian because she married Papa, and he was Armenian, my mom responded. I was part Armenian, part Jewish. Suddenly I understood the roots of my overwhelming persecution complex. My mom went on to say that it was okay that I knew I was a Jew as long as I kept it a secret. I nodded my head and promised no one would ever know. The next day I got up early and dressed in my best Lee jeans and t-shirt with the Triumph motorcycle iron-on decal on the front. I ran down to the school bus 15 minutes before it was due, and when it arrived, I rode in the front egging the bus on, Get there! Get there! Get there! Never before in my life had I so wanted to be somewhere. All that day, I went up to every Jew I saw, and I said through a grin that made my cheeks ache, Guess what? I'm Jewish! I'm Jewish! I'm a Jew, just like you! And of course, now I've just told you to. <laughs> Identity. You have a lot of identity <laughs> stuff in these stories. Yeah. Who am I? 
I, I, I think you're Kelly. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, yeah, I think, um, um, figuring out who you are has always been something that I, I was, I was looking for as a kid. I was always trying to, trying to nail that down somehow and, mm-hmm. and never did figure that out. Yeah. I, I didn't get you the manual that you didn't get. <laughs> Still they, haven't they, gotten they, it. they missed my house too. <laughs> good. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's so important to to feel like, you know, like what tribe, literally, <laughs> what tribe am I in? Where do I belong? And then once we belong there, you know, life seems to become more ordered or make more sense in some level. Absolutely true. Absolutely yeah. true. And I think that for kids who, who are brought up in sort of like these weird offshoot kind of things, I mean, there's nothing wrong. You know, everyone – I'm. I would never deny anyone their, their right to have their, their religious choice. But, you know, I think people who are kind of in these offshoot sort of things like Christian science, um, the kids do feel kind of, um, uh, like they are sticking out like a sore thumb mm-hmm. among their friends. Like they just, they don't belong. They don't have a, uh, a tribe, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's such a weird dichotomy to adolescence, how we, like you said, you know, we want to desperately fit in and, and yet it's a time when we're exploring who we are. Mm-hmm. And yet we want to look like everyone else and be listening to the same music as everyone else and yeah. wear the same clothes as everyone else and and yet say to our parents, oh, you don't understand me. I'm me. It's so true. <laughs> it's such a crazy so time. I'm about, I'm about to admit to you, something to you that I never admitted in high school. I, I didn't like Led Zeppelin. No, I didn't. <laughs> I came to. I mean, it's funny because I hear it now. I like crank it up. I'm like so yeah. psyched, like every song. But it was sort of like beer, caviar, you know. Yeah. Took a while. Some people, you know, that's true. My dad, um, yeah, this vinyl collection here behind me was my dad's uh, vinyl collection from the 60s and 70s. And uh, there's no Led Zeppelin in there. Dad was not a Zeppelin fan. Mm. He didn't like that kind of music. I don't think he liked the heavy metal. And Bob, my husband, doesn't like Led Zeppelin either. Uh-huh. And it's so so because my dad didn't have it, and I kind of learned my musical taste through from that. Um, I had to discover them from friends exactly. in high school. And uh, me, I was a stoner. So once the Led Zeppelin started, I was like, <laughs> and also you know the thing I love about Led Zeppelin is they've got that um, you know it's it's very blues oriented type of music yeah. you know and um i'm just a huge fan of the blues you know mm. anything that's depressing no anyway <laughs> <laughs> um what was like oh what i love about your stories is because you and i are just about the same age you take me right back into the cultural uh, things you talk about and oh, and i just immediately get things are like oh yeah that's right like that's you're my people <laughs> you know, thank you for saying that. I, I have I've said this to other people, and I and I, I'll say it to you, to you guys: the absolute best compliment anyone could pay me is to start telling me about something from their childhood, or say, you know what, I I remember that. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I if be it the tattoo you, or be it um, you know, I, I talk about the golf um, extra kick uh, horseshoes on the back of cars. I remember from a kid, and and I when people respond to those things. Um, that really touches me. But what is even more amazing to me sometimes is when someone who was like born in the seventies, um, or from, from Europe comes back and says, Oh, you know, I remember the Fiat's, <laughs> which I mean, obviously has no relationship, but, but right. somehow in my telling, I, I brought them back to their childhood. Yeah. That's, that's when I feel like I've accomplished my job. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh. No, I didn't. I'm kidding. No, no, that really is. That is all true. That is all true. No, that's, that's great. So there's, there's something about, um, I don't know. Uh, what is that? What is that for you? What is that connecting well, for you? Th- th- it's, it's that word itself. It's connecting. It's knowing mm. that, um, the, my audience didn't just hear a story, but knowing that, um, they experienced mm. their own life again, that something that I told them about my, world and my experience um struck them and reminded them of moments of their life and and it's that having that connection to me is 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 um what it's all about yeah yeah because uh, literally it's like a, f- a, f- a a flood comes into your mind when you hear that 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 moment or that yeah. that that uh, that item you talked about you know and it's like oh suddenly junior high is in my mind you know and there i am and i can see todd saucer and matt green who I was going to marry because then I would be Kelly Green. <laughs> and he was probably a Jew. Now that I think about it, the word green, you know, usually it was a Greenberg. And they took the probably, bird away. Probably. <laughs> oh, that's the other thing I love about that story. It's when you figure out something about, oh, oh, what was it? There's something about the way when you realized you were a Jew – Oh, I just love it. My freaking brain today isn't, but th- there's, th- there's something about, oh, oh, when you, when you, when you kind of understand that you are different than who you thought you were 10 minutes ago, it's like this whole, like this whole new reframe on your life comes in and you're like, oh, it's like, I remember when I, I figured out and understood what it meant to be Irish, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and then it was like, oh, I'm, I'm related to people on this island over there. <laughs> And, and, the, but it's your island. It, yeah. And, and now it's my Ireland, my Ireland, my island. And, and, and suddenly it was like, Oh, and when, now when I meet other Irish people, I can relate to them Absolutely. on this whole other level. Doesn't really mean I can actually relate, <laughs> but you do. You feel expanded in some way. You feel, I don't, it's, no, you, you hit on it exactly. Suddenly. Um, their history is your history. Mm. And that's a huge, huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd actually always known, my dad, um, his, his mom was off the Mayflower. So their, their history wow. was written down. Yep. Um, could be recited by members of the family, um, uh, when they didn't have too much Canadian club in them. <laughs> um, you know, my mom's side of the family, you know, the Armenian side, they knew back like one generation or two. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother, like she would tell me stories about family, but she wouldn't tell me who she was telling me the story of. Um, like there's a, there was a statue of, of Uncle Gasha, uh, not Gasha, uh, Uncle Aleutian rather, um, in her house, um, like a bust. Mm-hmm. She would never really tell us who the heck <laughs> Uncle Aleutian was. Um, <laughs> And um and why someone felt they needed to make a bust of him? Apparently, he had some money. If Appar- you might guess, apparently <laughs> that money didn't trickle down to my generation. <laughs> no, it's in the bust. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, you know, and I think, and I've spoken to a lot of friends, you know, Eastern European heritage, uh, um, Jewish. It is an interesting thing. They do uh, don't have this stuff recorded mm-hmm. anywhere near. You know, like I said, I mean, my father. Yeah. You know, they. Uh, pieces of paper with it written everywhere and everyone had it memorized yeah and, wow yeah. yeah my yeah i've got a little bit of irish I, I my dad was irish full irish his mother was born in new york city in chelsea uh-huh. part of manhattan and his father was actually born in ireland came over at 18 months wow and By so, himself? uh just yeah decided to get on a boat 
really precocious. Cor- yeah, courageous, precocious child. Uh, so we know those people. We know a little, and we know the counties they came from. Mm-hmm. And then my mom's side, though, she was her family was here in the 1800s, and we have some. It was the Cook family, mm-hmm. and we I have some of that family tree. And all I know is that. I don't know how many generations ago that was like great, great grandparents or something that some great, great grandparents of mine had something like 17 kids Wow! and, you know, about eight of them survived. I think that's pretty normal. You know, and you see the family tree and you're like died at birth, died at two, died at, you know, tractor or, you know, a horse kicked in head, <laughs> you know, because they had no medicine yeah. back then. And it's like, wow. It, and, and that was cool for me to find out that I had had family here in that time in the mm-hmm. Ohio Valley, my pioneer family, I call them. <laughs> I picture them in little bonnets on horse carriages. Oh, I wish I could go back. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I love, have you been on the, um, ancestry.com yet and tried that? You know, I was, I was a paying member for about two years. I, I basically raped it of all information I could find. And then, <laughs> um, what actually got me to stop was uh, my uh, renewal came up and, you know, I just, you know, I, you let these things slide. And all of a sudden they started calling me at work. What? They were like, call, they were like hounding me. Are and these I got, Mormons, like, Logan? I got, I got like seven <laughs> or ten phone calls from them I and, I, Mormons. and I stopped using it because of that. Although I may, I may go back to it because I'm sure there's a lot more information on it now. I haven't been on yet. It's, but- it's astounding. I mean, what's beautiful about it? I mean, going then into like the Freeriks family. You know, going back to censuses and just, you know, finding out who was alive, when, mm-hmm. what they were doing. Mm. Um, I found out, you know, why my grandfather, Charles Joseph, uh, uh, Freericks was named that. It was his two grandfathers were Charles Freericks and Joseph Sextro, which was an interesting last name. Um, and you know, that it was just great because mm-hmm. this information never passed on to me. Yeah. yeah. The whole internet is just amazing. The stuff we can find. I found, a um, college essay that my grandfather wrote at Berkeley about the wow. uh, 1908 earthquake, wow. uh, which I would guarantee you that the whole time I knew my grandfather, he had no memory of having written. But um, he, it was in the records at Berkeley, and someone put it online. Oh my gosh! Um, I found a vanity book that my grandfather wrote for his future bro- brother-in-law, my grandmother's uh, brother. Um, when, which, uh, was written to be a resume, mm-hmm. but started like, you know, about them, um, uh, thinking about the future and what was going to come in the future and how the future was radio. Wow. Um, <laughs> and it is, it's right here. And interestingly, <laughs> interestingly, they both wound up working for the New York Times. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's great. I'm, I'm going to go check it out, but the rumor has it that it, the it Mormons do run ancestry.com. He's a, He's a recovering Mormon. Uh, so it's, I'm always well, like, it's, I give him the Mormon question. Well, I, think, I think the reason for that, if I, if I <laughs> tell me if I'm correct, Logan, is that, um, the, um, uh, if you are in any relation whatsoever to, to a Mormon, that there's also a place for you in heaven. I think that's what I was told. And that's, I, that's why the, I, the, the, everything's tracked. I'm understanding that we all get to go if they baptize us. That's, I was, that's, I was that's, hearing about that. I heard that they baptized true. my dad. That's what I heard. Wow. Could have happened. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know if it helped. Do you have to believe in it? That's what I wonder. <laughs> even, if, even if you're dead? <laughs> um, I so, so when is this going to be a movie? Because I think that's what it needs to be. Um, are, 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 are you listening, Mr. <laughs> D- I- <laughs> Come on. You got friends at New Line. <laughs> Come on, New Line. Step up here. Yeah. Well, the New Line that I worked for had 400 employees. I think it's down to about 12 now. Cause I had a friend who worked yeah. there too when it was 400 employees. 
Yes. Yeah. And then it's, yeah, I think it is down to it was, two. Yeah, because it's basically now a they label. They merged it. Yeah, it's a label for Time Warner, for, for Warner Brothers. What happened right. was when um, uh, Time Warner bought up uh, uh, Turner. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> When they bought Turner, they suddenly were in this position of having um, two studios, two um, television departments, and, um, and who, suddenly looking at you know more financial risk. And who needs two of those exactly. things? You just yeah, there's, exactly. there's I barely have enough room for my sheets and towels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it. I really. It's so cinematic the way you write because your description is so profoundly good and detailed oh, and and it, it really is this coming of age you have these coming of age stories and uh maybe it's a tv show damn it damn it chuck we're doing something with this <laughs> we have to make something i want to see the little i want to see the little young man play you <laughs> the little the cute little chuck lost <laughs> searching for his imaginary friend <laughs> by the way um who, who does your uh, imaginary friend hang out with um, he, he never came by to tell me. No? But I'm assuming, I'm assuming yes. the kid next door, cause the kid next door was pretty freaking cool. He was cool. the cool. Yeah. He was pretty freaking cool. And I just, I figured he must be over there. He must be hanging out over they there. They got, um, they used to have, um, Charles Chips, um, um, and pretzels delivered mm-hmm. to their house. Mm. You know, I mean, they were much cooler. Hello, that's like a rock star status. And, um, his parents would take him to McDonald's, <sighs> which I'd never been in. So. Yeah. He was, he was. Yeah, he was eating. He was, he was, he was, I mean, I would, uh, I wasn't worthy. He was eating Big Macs with your neighbor friend. Yeah. Damn, man. That'd be my guess. Bastard. <laughs> well, thank you for coming back or coming back. Thank you. I want you to come back, Ashley, because I want you to read more stories. Um, I'd thank, love to. thank you for being here. And everyone, here, give me the book. Uh, please buy, uh, Charles's book. It's called My Imaginary Friend Was Too Cool to Hang Out with Me. And, there's a cute picture of on the back uh, where he looks like he's humping a tree. I'm hugging. <laughs> oh, he's hu- hugging he's, the tree. He's an early tree hugger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, please find this on Amazon. You, you, you know, you know the writing's good. Please go and get it. Read it. Read it to your children. Well, not yet. Not uh, well. You know, when they're a little older. Thank you for coming by. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Um, so everyone, uh, thank you for being here today and listening to us. Uh, what announcements do I have? I don't know what announcements I have. I, I feel like I'm, you know, the, the principal in the school and I'm like, announcement time, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, I'm tired. I'm losing my mind. You know what I'm looking forward to? Making a little pasta and sitting on my couch and watching American Idol tonight. People, this is what I am looking forward to. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. Uh, please, please. I know I say this every week, but please support this show. Go to kellycarlin.com forward slash waking and you will find the PayPal button and all you have to do is click on it and then you write in a little amount and it comes towards me. And no, I am not buying Prada shoes. No, I am not buying Louis Vuitton purses. No, I am supporting this podcast with your money. It goes straight into the podcast. Never mind that everything in the studio is gold plated right now. No, I'm just kidding. It's not at all. Please support independent media. We're here because you support us and uh, we aren't going to look into advertising because that's the reality of it, people. So I'm just letting you know, if you don't want advertising here, let me know by giving us a few dollars. 
Come see me in Austin, March 10th at South by Southwest. I'll be um, performing a Carlin Home Companion 5 p.m. that Saturday at the convention center. I don't know if you can get in or not without a badge, but possibly you can come in and see my show. I don't know. I would love to see you. Come find me. I'll be there for three days in Austin. Tweet me. Let me know that I'm that you're there and that we can meet up. Like I said, find me on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. Find me on Facebook. I have a like page. Waking from the American Dream has a like page. Um, and I have a normal page too, but I'm starting to fill up and I'm going to start not taking friend, re- you know, friend requests. So come find me on the like page. It's the same as my friend page. I blah, blah, blah all over the place there. Uh, I'd like to thank Logan Heftel for being here and setting up the equipment and pushing all the right buttons and, um, uh, being our, our resident Mormon expert when we need the, the call on the Mormon stuff. I want to thank all the crew at Smodcast, uh, Ken and Jay and, uh, oh, I know I'm forgetting other people's names. Um, oh, uh, see, yeah, I was at rehearsal today. And I want to thank Kevin for hosting my show on his fabulous Smodcast network. And next week, I have a person on the show who is a Twitter friend who you got to go check this guy out. His name is Chuck Wendig. He go check out his website. He's an amazing writer. He's smart. He's very funny. Um, I don't know. I like to hang out with smart, funny guys. What can I say? Who are great writers. I don't know where I got that from. Hmm. I think I still have daddy issues. I will need to go back to therapy. <laughs> Donate now if you want me to go back to therapy. (laughs) I need all the mental support I can get these days. Um, what else? Uh, that's it. Uh, also remember Dylan Brody's new CD has come out, Chronological Disorder. Support him. Support all my guests on this great show. You know, we've got good friends here. Great tribe. We call it the Polymind Commune here. No, we don't get naked, but yes, we do play music and dance our asses off. All right. We're going to end the show with uh, one of our all time favorites. Uh, We're going to end it with Katie Goodman singing. I didn't fuck it up. There's never been a time. As fucked up as
Did you fuck it up? Go on, ask them. How about you? Did you fuck it up? Now sit back and look at them and say, because you look like someone who could have fucked it up. Now it's fucked up. Now let's pick ourselves up off the floor and create a tone of camaraderie and ask, could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking minute to help unfuck it up. Then lose the righteous asshole attitude and take a breath and say, because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? Oh, that's better. Does that feel better? Yeah, feeling the love. The problem is that you just can't help feeling bitter that it's fucked up to begin with. You just go round and round like this. Okay, back with me now. Didn't fuck it up. Let it out. Come on. You know you feel it. You probably didn't fuck it up. You don't have to believe it. Just go with it for now. But they, that's right, shift the blame. They fucked it up. Now it's fucked up. That's right. Okay. Yeah, you're clapping, but. The problem is deep down inside, you're feeling depressed and hopeless, right? Okay, I got it. We're gonna come together for this one. I need your help. We're gonna fill this room up with love and inspiration. And it won't last past the time you leave here tonight, but everybody on this side, let's all unfuck it up. Okay, real loud and proud. Let's all unfuck it up. Now you gotta keep going without me when I leave you. Here we go. Let's all unfuck Fuck it up. Doesn't that feel good? Keep it rolling. Now over here. We have a special part. It's a little repetitive, but it's fucked, 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 it's fucked. Can you do that? It's fucked, it's fucked. Commit already. I wanna be an unfucker. It's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, it's fucked, 